Welcome to Reformations, the podcast of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. This morning, we welcome Andrew Spicer. Andrew teaches at Oxford Brookes University in Oxford, England. And he is here at the Meter Center for a research period for the next few weeks. And we've brought him in to talk a little bit about his experience, his research interests, and why he came to use the Meter Center. So Andrew, start please by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what led to your interest in Reformation studies. Well, as you said, I'm uh, visiting from Oxford, and it's an opportunity to come here to complete some projects. Uh, my interests, my research interests, sort of focus on several key areas, which are sort of interrelated. Uh, I suppose that one of the ones I'm most known for is uh, researching into architecture and the Reformation, looking at the impact of religious change on buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, But related to that, I'm also interested in questions of material culture, and material culture of worship specifically. And again, thinking about the interaction with ideological change and how that um, fits with the continued use of certain items, uh, such as communion vessels, um, but also thinking about other aspects of material culture. And uh, another strand of my interest is to do with sacred space and the idea of what is regarded as sacred or not sacred, how that can be restored, how that can be destroyed. And so that's both in terms of thinking about issues of consecration, but also um, images and iconoclasm. So what led you to be interested in the Reformation to start with as a sort of area of research? Why the Reformation rather than any other period? Um, Well, I suppose I've always been interested in church buildings. Um, From a very young lad, I was always going and visiting churches, quite often leaving my parents while on holiday to go off and explore, or even just going out from home to tour churches. Um, And then I suppose when I was doing my A-levels, there was a link between the place I was studying, Solihull Sixth Form College, and the University of Warwick. And at that time, Jack Scarisbrick was one of the professors there. And he came and talked to us. Um, what, in fact, I've only just realised is one of the series of lectures he gave at Oxford, the Ford Lectures. Um, he gave us a sort of summary of one of those. Mm-hmm. And this was about the um, English church on the eve of the Reformation and thinking about buildings and material culture. So although I didn't do that initially for my uh, doctoral research, I was focusing on immigrants at that time. Um, When it came to move on from that, this became a sort of quite obvious topic for me to uh, look at, to think about churches. But using all that I had actually uh, taken on board from my thesis about reform theology and thinking, and to then think about Calvinist churches and so forth. It's amazing, isn't it, how certain individuals coming into your academic current at one particular moment can be so influential. And someone like Scarisbrick, who was a leading figure in Reformation studies, can really kind of shape the direction you take. I think that's quite amazing. It, it, it is quite a surprise, and I, when I mentioned this in my inaugural lecture, I think it took quite a few people by surprise that I'd actually remembered this. I think at the time I'd actually tape-recorded the, interv- uh, the actual um, uh, lecture on one of those dictaphones. It was that, that long ago. Um, but it did sort of stay in my mind that this was an interesting way of thinking about religious change. And it, I suppose one of the things I've always been interested in is not so much the big ideas, but how 
the big ideas affected ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I keep on drumming into my students is that, yeah, okay, this is what Calvin says, this is what Luther says. Actually, what happens and what matters is what happens every Sunday in the parish church. That's where you see the Reformation. It's all right writing these big books in Latin or very technical language, but actually for ordinary people, it's what they see on their, in their parish church on a Sunday that bothers and affects them. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm, I'm very much on the same wavelength with you about this. And That's what I find most fascinating about the Reformation is how it really was both received by but also shaped by ordinary people. So can you talk a little more about the sacred space idea and the, the aspects of worship in, in physical objects as to why, what can that tell us about people's experience? Why a focus on these, on these particular aspects? I suppose one, if I'm thinking about, um, I'll start with consecration and sacred space in that sense. It's one of those areas where um, we know from the theology of the Reformation that there is the denial of uh, that any place can be more holy than another, mm -hmm. that a place can be made sacred through the actions of a priest, uh, sorry, actually a bishop, um, and that everywhere is the same. But we actually see in people's reactions to it that that actually isn't how it's interpreted. If we think about a reform tradition, we see in that tradition um, this denial officially that this a church is any different from another place. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we get ministers saying, hang on, you've got to behave with decorum in this place because this is where the word of God is preached. Absolutely. And we understand you are hearing God's word. So therefore you must behave yourself. Mm -hmm. Therefore we're not going to allow the church to be open in case you go in and do something in there that's superstitious. So there's this sort of odd contradiction which I'm fascinated by. Um, and then just um, a, a future project, a sort of long way down the road, although I've actually written a chapter about it, um, is thinking about how the Anglican Church actually reintroduces rites of consecration. Um, after having gone through in the late 16th century saying exactly the same as the other reformers that no, 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 this isn't sacred, but moving on into the late 17th century and then in the 18th century, finding that consecration becomes a very important way in which the Anglican Church uh, can identify and distinguish its own buildings from um, nonconformist chapels. Mm -hmm. So nonconformist chapels are the derided as the typical barns and so forth, not special places, and the Anglicans are trying to say, As our churches are special because they're consecrated, but we're not doing any of that ca terrible Catholic stuff. So it's... W it's fascinating how you work on those degrees of compromise. But in another area that I've sort of written about, and in fact actually gave a lecture here in Grand Rapids on at the uh, Calvin Conference, um, was uh, looking at communion vessels mm -hmm. and looking at how there is that transition of how those are used and then thought about by communities, um, how we move away from a chalice to a cup because you need more wine, but actually then also thinking about how are those treated. And so that, in particular, looking at Dutch communion, because there you have very strange things in the sense that you've got engravings and depictions of the Lord's Supper on some of them. And this is a culture that is not supposed to be engaging with 
portraying the divine and so mm -hmm. forth. So it, it, again, it's that actual mediation um, at a local level that fascinates me. And I think sometimes in how the space is used and in how these objects are given, you can again see how the ordinary population is perhaps reacting, or at least those who have enough money to contribute to the adornment of the sacred space. Exactly. How they are perceiving the Reformation yeah. beyond the treatise written by the reformer and so on. And, and I think that's the tracks we're looking for, isn't it? Very much so. I mean, it, it's people negotiating um, religion on their own terms. Yes, this is what we want in terms, of, or this is what you want officially, mm -hmm. but this is how we're gonna do it here. Yeah, absolutely. So you have been um, active in the field of Reformation studies now for a number of years. Um, what do you see as the main trends or currents in the field? Uh, if you look at Reformation studies as it's been perhaps changing over your career so far, um, would you say you're hopeful or concerned about the future of Reformation studies? What do you see when you look at the field? I suppose we've moved away very much from the national studies, the sort of more parochial um, approach to Reformation studies, um, where you know people focused on a particular small community. I mean, that hasn't gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still there in certain traditions. There are people who do um, theses on very small communities. But I think actually people have begun to move away from that to look at broader trends. Um, and uh, certainly I would say um, becoming much more global in thinking about perspectives mm -hmm. uh, of history, but also, um, you know, I think the material turn is is one that's still alive and well, um, and we've seen the effect of uh, the funding in Australia for the research on emotions, right. and that's been spilling over into aspects of Reformation history as well. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those are encouraging. Um, looking to the future, I think. Um, in the same way um, as the technological developments that we've seen with things like Ebo, Early English Books Online, um, that uh, push for digitization of sources, yep. both uh, printed sources, and now what we're beginning to see is extraordinary developments in terms of um, digitizing archives, um, in particular sort of... Um, beginning to move towards the scope of actually being able to digitize a volume without even opening it will actually just expand the amount of archival material that will be available to us all of which is in many ways exciting mm -hmm. um, the only sad thing is we won't necessarily need to go to these places this to is look true. at them um, you know uh, so swings and roundabouts in that sense what about the language skills needed to interact with these primary sources. Do you think, I mean, when I look at the North American field especially, I'm aware of the challenges for students who don't have Latin or French or German. It kind of limits them in their ability to engage with Reformation studies. What would you say the, the perspective is from, from the British perspective? Oh, very much the same, the difficulty of language. Um, but I was at a, um, a Royal Historical Society symposium in Oxford um, about this time last year and it was about global history and one of the issues that was being talked about it was the difficulty of doing global history um, particularly if you were talking about studying Asia and so forth without languages but mm -hmm. there was also this feeling that this was one of those areas that you could actually see technological advantages right. um, where 
language was becoming more accessible in terms of translations. I mean, mm -hmm. one only has to look at Google Translate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is far superior now to what it was two, three, four years ago. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, <laughs> that's not going to get you very far if you're trying to do um, in-depth studies. But I... So language is a limiting factor, but I think in the future we might find that we are ending up with more translations, yep. uh, making things accessible. The only problem is, depending on what you want to do, um, it is better sometimes to be looking at the original rather than some interpretation. I mean, for example, if you look at Luther's works, mm -hmm. the, English tra uh, the American translation of that, it's fine, but it, it's also of its time. There yep. are sort of certain points where you think, yeah, I can see that that was translated in the 1970s. It w it's not quite as you would put it now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it makes things more accessible to a, a large number of people. But we are always going to need to learn languages. Do you think the turn to material culture, sacred space and so on, do you think that opens up the field for folks who may not have as many, you know, abilities in, say, Latin or something like that? Or is that just a, a cop-out to say, well, if I don't know the language, I can also do material culture instead? Or I could go and look at pictures. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you need to, you need, it, if you're going to do it properly, you need the languages to be able to read the sources, yeah. uh, to just, to look at to look at objects without thinking about their purpose um, is not going to get you very far. And to be able to think about not only how they are used, um, if you can physically handle them, that is that is fantastic, mm -hmm. which I've had the opportunity to do on a few occasions. Um, but also you need to be able to read the materials behind it. What is this supposed to do? What are we supposed to be thinking when we are holding a communion mm -hmm. cup or communion beaker and so on? So, um, yeah, it, you could go and look at things, uh, but you're only going to do part of the job that way. And a related question, but maybe from a different angle. Um, the Reformation can be studied by folks who have no particular religious interest of their own, mm -hmm. obviously. It doesn't mean you have to have a religious interest to study the Reformation. But does the increasing, perhaps, secularization of young people, students, or so on and so forth, does that affect their ability to understand the Reformation or engage with it? How, how has that changed, do you think, as perhaps Europe in particular has become less generally Christian? It has become less Christian, but there's still um, an interest in religion, mm -hmm. and, I, uh, and that seems to be increasing. I teach a second-year call, course called Conflict and Belief mm -hmm. on uh, the disruptions and wars of the uh, 16th century. And I tell the students, you're going to learn a lot of about belief before we get to any conflict. Mm -hmm. And so it does mean that they have to have a crash course in Reformation theology, but you need to actually tell them what the Catholics believe before you get to that. Exactly. So... That does mean that you're having to do a lot more of that mm -hmm. um, than you perhaps uh, ha did in the past. But there is still an interest in the topic. Yep. Um, even even um, ending up with big questions um, and having discussions. A student had a question about, uh, had misread something. Um, I think what we, we were looking at the... Um, uh, Council of Trent and they misunderstood something and thought God was a woman Woman, ah. and so we ended up into this whole discussion about no actually it was referring to the church and there was well why is the church feminine well it's the bride of Christ and so we ended up in this interesting theological discussion yep. um, that just sort of came out of a misunderstanding and yeah 
you know, the class was interested. Yep. So I think if we can have things that engage mm -hmm. um, students, then they will actually learn from that and pick up on it. Uh, and I think also sometimes, certainly in past scholarship to a certain extent on the Reformation, there was perhaps a, a challenge of people being so focused on a particular line of faith mm -hmm. that that was all they saw. Yes, exactly. And so perhaps with a broader openness to not already deciding who are the good guys and the bad guys that mm -hmm. might also shape the field in in new ways exactly i mean you know bringing new perspectives mm -hmm. um i mean ethan shagan made made some comments to that effect about looking at the english uh, reformation from his perspective mm -hmm. so i think that that is one of those uh you know it it adds adds another dimension to this kind of study another yep. possible richness to it absolutely Another area I was looking at and thinking about was um, over the last few years, we've had an awful lot of commemorations of the Reformation, anniversaries. Um, you've undoubtedly been involved in this and been consulted as an expert on all sorts of aspects of the Reformation with 2009 for Calvin and 2017 for Luther. Do you think these commemorations are helpful or not in terms of the wider impact of Reformation studies? I think it's an interesting question in that I think... I think it works at two levels, mm -hmm. uh, and it, I think it is important to mark these occasions in terms of letting the wider public know and engaging with the wider public. And I think the success of the Luther exhibitions, we particularly saw that um, a real engagement with, um, you know, 31st of October 1517 and everyone believing that actually these were pinned on the door uh, and that image uh, you know if it's actually appearing on news programs mm -hmm. uh, it's actually making the Reformation relevant to people today so in that sense I think those anniversaries are useful but as, I as a friend said to me about the whole Luther celebrations I feel sorry about Melanchthon mm -hmm. didn't get a look in and there, there is that danger of anniversaries concentrating on one figure. Yes. And I can understand it in the sense that that's the person who actually does the, the, does the deed. Mm -hmm. um, and that also is something that is more understandable to a wider public if you focus on one individual. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that we go back to the great figures of history approach. Yes. Um, which I th feel we've in many ways moved away from that sort of Lytton Strachey and great Victorians and, and that approach. Um, and that's all for the good. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, the anniversaries reinforce that stereotype. For an academic, yes, they're fun, but there is also at the end of it a certain degree of fatigue yes. um, that results from over-commemoration over of a particular um, event um, as uh, numbers of society groups actually try and mark the occasions in their own way. Yes. And of course, now what we're seeing is, and now we're getting the flood. So we had the flood of publications before the Luther anniversary, all the biographies of Luther and so forth. And now we're getting the beginnings of all the conference uh, proceedings appearing yes. uh, as well. Which, you know, I, I have read some good ones. Yep. Um, so that, 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 that is helpful. But it does slightly distort the field. It, I find it interesting also when we do these commemorations, we give these reformers a very odd status in some ways. And it's not just today. I mean, the Meter Center has this collection of commemorative coins of the Reformation, right? Lovely coins mm -hmm. with the head of John Calvin on each yep. one of them. And 
when you start to start to think about it, it's a very weird thing, right? Because these aren't saints, nope. right? It's not like we're nope. praying to them, but we're giving the reformers a very odd quasi-saint status, which, again, it's not just the focus on one person. It's the focus on one person as the model and ideal and hero, which, again, is rather concerning in terms of giving a, a fully orbed picture of, a, of an individual. Well, exactly. And, and we're g- giving them status that they wouldn't have recognized themselves. Or, I mean, let's face it, we don't know where Calvin's buried. Uh-huh. We know where Luther's buried. Um, and we know that Charles V went and had a look at he, in his tomb. But we don't... Uh, so we, we, by these events, we are as you almost... I, I hesitate to... Well, I was going to say deify, that's probably the wrong word, maybe mm-hmm. canonize yes. um, these individuals um, by this association. Uh, and But there again, they are the leading figures in these events. And so it is easier in some ways to pin an idea on an individual than to actually use a, a thesis or an idea uh, as a point of commemoration. Absolutely. So you've come to the Meter Centre all the way from England, and you're going to be with us for some, what, three, three and a half weeks, something like that? About that, yes. Yes. So why come all the way from England to Grand Rapids to the Meter Centre? But someone may think that's a rather strange, aren't there good libraries in England? There are very good (laughs) libraries in England, and I live in a city with one of them, the Bodleian. Um, And the British Library is only an hour away. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is a very odd idea. Um, For me... When I came on a fellowship a few years ago, um, I was working on the Huguenots and art. I found that this was an ideal place to focus um, in that uh, I had ideas about what I wanted to be working on. And uh, I found that the library, um, both the Meter Centre and the Heckman Library, are extremely well resourced. Mm -hmm. So that there is the advantage that um, I'm sitting in a library all day um, working uh, and the books are to hand and it's without the distractions that I would have at home. Um, there is a great thing to be said for being five hours diff- time difference when it comes to dealing with emails mm-hmm. um, and so actually just being able to arrive in the library at 8 o'clock and work until 4.30, 5 o'clock um, is, is just great. It gives you actually the opportunity to focus and concentrate on nothing else. Absolutely. So and just getting that, that productive period of research under your belt exactly. before you have to go back and deal with all the other tasks that are kind of surrounding right. you otherwise. Yes. Right. Yes. So um, anything else you think you'd like to share in terms of projects you are looking into, um, aspects of your research that are really exciting to you at the moment? Well, I, I suppose I'm coming to I'm just coming to the end of uh, a book I've been working on for ten years. Um, it's called War, Revolt, and Sacred Space, mm-hmm. and it's a book about how um, after the iconoclastic fury of 1566 and the Calvinist republics in the southern Netherlands uh, and the w- revolt against Spain, how um, the Catholic Church re-established itself and restored sacred space, and I have reached the point where I, I have one chapter left to write. It, it, is, it is a very big book. Mm. Um, and that's about art in this period. Um, and it's a book that actually I now understand. Um, I, wrote a, a, I wrote parts of it 
and the different chapters stood together. And now I've actually sort of finally got my head around how all this comes together. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to finishing that manuscript over the summer. Um, and then moving on to the book on um, consecration. Wow. Um, which, is, which is my next project. Can you say a little bit about that one? It's going to be primarily focused upon um, the Anglican Church. Mm -hmm. So um, I've written about, as I said, this, this contest or co uh, uh, contesting sacred space in terms of making a distinction between Catholics, Anglicans and nonconformists. Um, but I, I want to look at also how um, the Reformation deals with the question of consecration, mm -hmm. mainly from an English perspective. Mm -hmm. um, there will be some grounding of it in the wider um, context of um, what's going on in Europe, um, because, of course, Lutherans end up having consecrations for their churches as well. So there will be some broader context, but it, I think it will be a change to just write something on England, yeah. um, which I've not done before, um, other than when I was writing about immigrants. Absolutely. So um, it'll be fun to go back to do that. And hopefully it won't take me 10 years to get this book done. <laughs> I hope indeed mm. that it'll be a project that comes together mm. better. Well, Andrew Spicer, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Not at all. Thank you for letting me be here.